Hi, hello, and welcome back to this week's segment of Girl You Haven't Heard, a true crime and Black Canadian history podcast where we discuss Black history and true crime without all of the propaganda and from a critical decolonial perspective. It's been a minute since I uploaded um, a new podcast episode, and I'm excited to be back. Um, This week we are talking about Africville, a Black community which was founded Um, near Halifax, just outside of Halifax City Limits in Nova Scotia, Canada. But before we get into that, I just want to give a little background information on the name of the podcast because I have not actually discussed that and I realized I probably should have. I wanted it to feel like we're having a conversation, like we're friends and this is just an organic sharing of knowledge that's happening. Um, Note that the use of the word girl in this context is not intentionally gendered just growing up um, when I was a lot around a lot of um, strong black women they would often use this term regardless of who they were speaking to just as a way it's a term of endearment it's meant to draw you closer it's to be more personable it's not meant to feel like I'm over here and you're over there and it's like a teacher student dynamic nothing like that wanted it to just feel more like we're friends sitting down having a conversation and I'm sharing the knowledge that I have with you So note that this podcast is not only meant for girls or women, it is for everybody, it is for men, it is for women, it is for non-binary folk, it is for everyone, literally just any and everyone. Have you enjoyed the podcast so far and want to find other ways to support? I do have a Patreon where you can join and you can get early access to all of the podcasts, all of the video episodes, and depending on the tier you select, you can also be a vote in what gets covered next you get to have a say in what is covered next and that is why this week we are speaking about africville because that was selected by my patrons so you can find the link to that in the description of every episode and if you don't want to become a patron and you just want to tip me you can also find the links for that in the description of every episode now my patreon does have three tiers and the three tiers give you access to three different things so if you are a teacher or an educator i would recommend getting the third tier or the highest level subscription to this tier allows you to have access to my notes to all of my definitions as well as my worksheets and workbooks for classroom use If you want to start teaching black history and you don't know where to start, that would be a great place to start. And I might be biased, but hey, check it out. Now, I just want you to know whenever I am using the word Canadian, it is in air quotes because Canada is not a real nation. It is one built on colonialism, genocide, the backs of enslaved Africans, land theft and racism. And we support land back over here. Also want to preface that black people are not settlers under any circumstances, anywhere. They're not. And this is not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. That's just the way that it is. Okay, so let's get into it. So like I said before, we are talking about Africville this week. And for those who don't know, Africville was a prominent black community, which was created just outside of Halifax city limits in Nova Scotia, Canada during what I would call peak racist times. It was located on the south shore of the Bedford Basin, which is in the northern part of Halifax, and it was often known as, and still is often known as, one of the first free black communities outside of Africa. 
Black folks who were freed from slavery in Canada and the U.S. or arrived through the Underground Railroad after being freed from one of the 13 colonies. Um, many of the folks who lived there were also freed during the American Revolution or the War of 1812. Some Black loyalists arrived in Nova Scotia as early as 1775, but Black people were present and living in Nova Scotia before the founding of Halifax in 1749. Now, black people were present not by choice, but because they were enslaved, stolen African folks who were forced to build the city and dig out the roads, which would later be known as Africville. Um, Maroons of Jamaica, folks who had freed themselves from slavery, were also relocated by the same British government who had enslaved them to the south southern shore of the Bedford Basin in 1796. Now, Africville rose to prominence in the 1800s, Though the, first landowner, though the first landowners on paper were William Arnold and William Brown in 1848. After they got ownership of land in this area, other families followed them very closely behind. Now, it wasn't named Africville by the choice of the residents. It just kind of happened and it was a name that stuck. And this name rose to prominence around the 1900s. Some folks who also lived in the area were transported via the crown, the British crown, with promises of land and supplies for their services during wars. This to me was very infuriating to read. It was like black folks were forced to exchange one form of slavery for another. Why did they have to be willing to lose their lives to gain some land and resources that were willingly being dished out for free to white people left, right and center? Now, the first ownership in general of the Africville area was recorded in 1761, and it was granted by the federal Canadian government to a bunch of white families who were importing and exporting slaves. So, at some point, these white families moved out of the area as more and more freed enslaved black folks began to move in, and also black folks who were enslaved just lived there as well. Now, who made up the town and who resided there? As I just mentioned, the first residents on paper and also just first residents in general were William Arnold and William Brown, who both purchased land in 1848. By 1849, there were 80 residents, so it started to grow quite quickly. Shortly after the population started to grow in Africville, the Seaview African United Baptist Church it was developed in 1849. It was built by the residents and it served as the life and heart of this little town. It was both a spiritual and a social center. Now, something that I'm noticing as a common theme in a lot of these black settlements that were developing around this time the churches were always the center it was everything spirituality was everything it helped to keep residents grounded despite the external forces that were trying to keep them shaken and unbalanced at all times so this church was no different it served as a hub for weddings baptisms funerals and picnics other black folks from other areas far and wide would come to attend the sunday picnics they were very well known for that and almost everything was done through the church whether it be clubs youth organizations bible classes or ladies auxiliary groups they were also extremely well known 
for their baptism and Easter sunrise services. There would be white and black folks alike lining the banks of the Bedford Basin to watch the singing procession leave from the church to baptize the adults in the basin's water. Now, this is something to me that is kind of irritating. Um, as we go on, you'll understand that white folks did not want Africville to exist. They did not want black folks to be able to have their own community and be essentially independent. Um, so it's just frustrating that white folks, even though they don't want black people around, time and time again, it is seen as okay and acceptable to get entertainment from black folks just living their lives and that's totally fine but then when it comes to getting black folks their rights or making sure that they have access to clean water or things like that that's not important they also had a hockey team named the africville brown bombers they were extremely popular because they were extremely good and it was one of the founding teams if not the founding team of the colored hockey league here in canada they also had a post office um, and the first elementary school opened in 1883. Now, as I mentioned, the town started to really boom in 1849, so, so it took 34 years to get a school of any kind built in this town. And this is not because Africvillians did not want one. They were trying for a long time to open it, but it took extensive petitioning to make that happen. Um, before the school had actually opened, a local resident had taken on the responsibility of educating the children as segregation was alive and well at this time period and the kids had nowhere else to go to school. Now, this school was closed in 1953 as Nova Scotia began to desegregate their education system, but realistically speaking, that just meant shutting down all of the black schools and making the black kids go to the previously all-white schools. This was, of course, extremely problematic, but we will get into that a little bit later. Now, Irene Carvery, a former resident of Africville, stated that the town was always extremely welcoming and folks were always there for one another. This town acted as a safe haven from the immense amounts of anti-Black racism that were faced within the Haligonian borders. Now, who also came from Africville, who kind of lived there, who entertained there, um, George Dixon, who was the first black boxing champion, was born and raised in Africville. And Duke Ellington, the musician, his father-in-law was from Africville, so Duke would often visit and stay with family while being there. If he had been able to stay in Halifax and rent a hotel there, I'm sure he might have, but it, it was impossible. People were not going to um, allow him to rent anything because of segregation and racism. Now, many of the places in the city would refuse to hire black people at all. So Africvillians needed to come up with ways of supplementing their own income. This caused many to become small business owners and a lot um, would actually become fishermen because the water was right there. It didn't cost anything to get the fish. Um, it was just a natural resource that they were able to access and then they would go into the city to sell their catch and This again really irritates me because it's like black people were not accepted You didn't want them in your space But when it's beneficial to you then it's okay for them to be there And then you just want to send them back to wherever they came from because they're not benefiting you anymore That is extremely problematic. It's super racist and it seems to be a theme in almost all of these cases 
many black folks and Africans could not eat at restaurants. They could not go to churches. They could not buy homes within city limits. They couldn't apply for business licenses and their children couldn't go to schools. So just very racist, um, obstacle after obstacle in the day-to-day life of an Africvillian if you had to leave Africville, which is why it was known as a safe haven because these problems that you faced everywhere else, you would not face there and you were always welcomed and embraced with open arms and loved by all who were around. So now we are going to get into the challenges and unfair treatment that was faced as an Africvillian. So... The city of Halifax refused to provide Africville with a sewage system, roads, clean water, garbage disposal systems, public transportation, cemetery, streetlights, snow clearing, electricity, and to fund community centers, which were all things that those within city limits had access to. Now, Africvillians did pay taxes to the city for these exact services, and they actually would go to city council meetings and demand that these services be implemented on multiple occasions, and every single time their demands were ignored. Residents had to petition the city for a community well in 1909, and this well was supposed to be a temporary solution, but up until the destruction of Africville, it was the only way to get clean water. Also, the complete irony of the city refusing to provide Africvillians with these things when many of the Africvillians had built these things for the city of Halifax, not by their own will, but through enslavement. There were also trains that ran through the town and posed a serious danger to children and everyone who lived there. These trains were not there from the beginning of Africville's conception, but were actually starting to be placed at around 1912. And this would also continue up until the destruction of Africville, and it polluted the town extensively. Environmental racism and will continue to be a theme throughout this case. Now, as I mentioned before, we would get into why closing down the school in Africville was problematic, and that time is now. So closing down the schools that weren't even funded by the city and forcing the black kids to go to the previous all-white schools is problematic for so many reasons. It created opportune times for racism and attacks against black children. It created many opportunities to make the black students feel inadequate and make them feel like their previous education wasn't good enough. They would often be sent into classes that had fewer resources and thus didn't really change the segregated circumstances. It just created an unsafe learning environment. Also, why did the black kids have to go to the black schools? Why couldn't new schools be created? Or why couldn't the white kids go to the black schools? Racism, of course. Those were kind of rhetorical questions, but just a thought. Now, as I mentioned before, many did not want Africville to exist, especially as Halifax started to boom in population. So instead of trying to relocate residents, the city of Halifax just decided to begin placing undesirable facilities and health hazards in or near Africville. In 1870, there was an infectious diseases hospital that was opened and it is where diseased World War II veterans would have been dumped at the time. 
Now, Eddie Carvery, a former resident, recalled that the hospital would dump their toxic garbage in and around the town. Trigger warning, just going to be describing what was dumped, so it might be a little bit gory, but there would be bloody body parts, blankets, and other extremely toxic waste. These individuals were clearly sick, and it is the Canadian way to try and infect minority populations when trying to get rid of them. And an example of this is when white colonizers purposely traded and gave indigenous populations blankets of those who they knew had smallpox as a mean of population control and racism. They wanted these folks dead or sick, so they were easier to control. And this to me is the same mindset behind placing the infectious diseases hospital basically in Africville, and also the mindset behind placing all of the other undesirable facilities as well. In 1854, Rockhead Prison was opened near the area. And the prison being so close to Africville, it made it very easy for white Haligonians to just tell everybody and make it seem like Africvillians were also criminals because they lived right beside the prison and that's where people who got out of prison would go. It was very stigmatizing. Now there was also an open pit garbage dump that was opened near Africville. Now the city had discussed other locations for this dump obviously another location would have been better a location where it was not near anyone at all but ultimately they decided against it because they did not want the dump to be a health nuisance but decided that placing the dump 350 meters from the western edge of africville was not a health nuisance and what they were really saying was that white people shouldn't be at risk their lives are not worth risking but these black people definitely who cares right like do it africvillians were not consulted about the decision to open up this dump in the right near their town basically in the town um, their protests were ignored and their health was seen as irrelevant and unimportant because the dump was just one giant open pit it of course attracted rats and eddie carvery estimates that there'd be a hundred thousand at a time he said that if you came out at nighttime with a light it would seem as if the dump was alive because of how many rats would just be throughout the garbage the city eventually sent exterminators to cover the dump in rat poison, which again subjected Africvillians to further toxicity. And this would be a regular process until the destruction of the community. So they would regularly come and dump rat poison, which would not kill the rats. It did not do anything to stop them. But all it did was expose Africvillians to more carcinogens because of the extermination process and the regular burning of the toxic waste and when you are burning toxic waste and then you are also now burning rat poison it's just it's a recipe for cancer like of course and eddie carvery says that a lot of residents are now fighting cancer because of this continual process carried out by the city of halifax now the city also opened night soil disposal pits which were basically just open dump human waste pits which as you can imagine is extremely toxic is extremely problematic they also opened a fertilizer plant which again would let out a lot of carcinogens in the area and in 1915 halifax declared that africville will always be an industrial district so it will always be a place for all of the toxicity that is not good for the white people 
This was clearly a racist decision. After all of these undesirable facilities were placed in or just around Africville, white Haligonians began to call Africville a slum, which became a super prominent term throughout the 1960s. This rhetoric played a key part in the destruction of the city, as once you demonize up space and demonize a set of people, anything wrong that happens to them afterwards is seen as justified and justifiable, and this was only amplified because the town was made of black people. Despite white Haligonians calling the city a slum, many who visited called it one of the most beautiful spots they had ever seen due to the view and also just the kind-hearted nature of the people. Now we're going to discuss the Halifax explosion of 1917. This explosion temporarily shelved plans to turn Africville in totally into an industrial zone. The explosion also happened at when Africville was at its peak population of approximately 400 black folks. The explosion leveled the neighboring area of Richmond and Halifax, as well as damaged a lot of Africville. Four Africville residents and one Mi'kmaq woman who was visiting the area died because of this explosion, so it was something quite serious. A doctor who was visiting the area at the time said that Africville residents were just wandering around looking at the destruction of their community and homes with despair. Now, because this explosion was such a big deal, Global Relief had actually brought in millions of dollars, but none of that relief went towards Africville or Africvillians despite the extensive damage that was done in the community. Halifax city officials did not even bother surveying the area, even though it was clear that many homes were badly damaged due to the explosion. And many had even lost their roofs, so it was obvious that funding was needed to rebuild the community, but they did not want this community to exist in the first place, so they were not going to give them any of this money that came in for the purpose of rebuilding. They were just going to cater to white Haligonians. Now, in 1947, there were a series of major fires, and this fire specifically burnt down several homes. The fire department had been called like a bunch of times, but many homes had already been burnt down because the Haligonian Fire Department took their sweet time to get there. There was no urgency. They didn't really care about this town that much, so if anything happened to their residents or their homes, they were kind of unbothered. This was also the fire that pushed the city of Halifax to demolish and relocate the town. They had been wanting to do it for some time now, but finally had a reason. So now we are going to get into the demolition and the destruction of Africville. The initial plans to turn the land into industrial land completely were revived and approved in 1947, the same year that the Africville fires occurred. Now the destruction had taken place between 1964 and 1967 under the guise of urban renewal, or what's common, more commonly known as gentrification, which is always a decision rooted in racism. The city claimed it was for developmental purposes, but it was clearly racism. Like, obviously, they'd wanted to get rid of Africville for some time now. The white folks in the city saw Africville as an eyesore, 
and the city made it one by placing all of the undesirable facilities there so of course people would say that and could hide their racism behind that comment which is the canadian way the land was never developed in the way that they claimed so it was extremely clear that they just wanted complete control of africville residents all that happened was the land was used to build a bridge there was private housing the irony there was private housing that was built there um, there was the Fairview Container Terminal, and then the rest of the land was used for a dog park, which is nothing super vital to development at all. It was a large community of Black folks who weren't controlled by city limits, city laws, and city restrictions, and they were operating separately from their system. This made the city of Halifax and white Haligonians uncomfortable and angry, and also they were racist. So they knew that the immense black pride shared amongst this community would diminish the minute they created physical separation and forced integration. The city insisted on using human rights terminology as a manipulation tactic into making black folks think their quality of life would somehow automatically improve if they moved into city limits. Because if they moved into city limits, they would now have access to all of the basic services they were already paying for but were denied by the same city. In 1962, a hundred Africvillians voted strongly against the destruction of their homes. Joe Skinner, a homeowner in Africville, spoke at this meeting and said, Africvillians deserve the opportunity to develop their own land the same way everyone else does. Africville was a place where black people were free and did not want to move into Halifax to end segregation. They knew that they would just be treated poorly under the guise of human rights. He also stated that if you are in Canada and you own property, you are not a second-class citizen. That is why Africvillians own the land. They've toiled over it, they worked for it, it's land that they own and they will hang on to it. When your land is being taken away and you aren't being offered a replacement, you become a peasant in any man's country. In January of 1964, the Halifax City Council voted in favor of the forced relocation of Africville residents and the destruction of the town which had been of prominence for almost a hundred years at that point. Of course, residents were not consulted on this decision and it is unclear if any black people at all were involved in this decision, but I'm just going to go ahead and assume that they weren't because it wouldn't have been approved then. If residents could quote unquote prove that the land was theirs, they would be offered some form of payment. It was kind of hard to do that when the land was stolen in the first place on behalf of the Canadian government and the British Empire and black freed folks had ended up on this area of land because white people did not want them in the city nearby. Many were never given opportunities to purchase land deeds, and but some of those who didn't have deeds but could prove that their family had been on the site for generations were offered money as well. Again, extremely difficult to prove that you and your family had just always been there, especially when the city is not wanting to believe you. They're not wa wanting to give you money. They just want you to get off the land. But again, this wasn't the case in every situation. Of course, since this was a forced situation, hundreds of residents did not want to leave. Not wanting to leave just made the city even more aggressive in their approach. The city would begin to turn to other messages such as further bribery or other forms of intimidation to get people to leave, other forms of coercion. 
homes began to be bulldozed lot by lot beginning in 1964. Residents felt that after the destruction had began, the town became like a war zone. Many would leave their homes during the day only to come back and find their property and everything within their homes destroyed. One man spent a night in the hospital and returned home to find its home and all of his contents destroyed. He was not compensated for that. It was intentional what the city was doing and they were looking for opportune times to attack when they knew there would be the least resistance. And this continued when the city decided to demolish the Seaview United Baptist Church in the middle of the night in early 1967. This was intentionally done, in my opinion, to break the spirits of Africvillians. The city knew that the church was the hub of the town and that those who remained would be more likely to leave as the spiritual strong point and first building of significance was no longer there. This was also done in the night because they knew it would be unexpected. They knew that Africvillians would not have the time to come and fight them once the demolition had begun in the middle of the night, right? Everyone was sleeping. And this was done because they knew it would be the path of least resistance. There's no one there to fight you when you're doing things in secret in the dark of the night. Now we are going to get into the humiliation of Africville residents and lies told to them by the Haligonian government. Residents were not told where they were moving or they were lied to by the city about where they would be going after they left Africville. They made it seem as if they would be moved into better housing in a nice part of the city and that just was not the case. Some residents were also given no notice and so they would just leave with whatever they could grab. The residents who were informed that they would be forcibly relocated, they were told that their belongings and themselves and their families would be transported to their new homes via moving trucks and movers, just like a regular person. But instead, the city sent garbage trucks and city workers after they claimed that the original moving company they had called cancelled. Imagine the embarrassment and the shame which would be internalized due to being transported to your new home that you did not even want to go to in garbage trucks. To me, this enforced all racist stereotypes that white Haligonians had at that time. They're dirty and they bring diseases with them, right? A lot of things that white people say about black people. There was a city worker who was actually responsible for helping folks move And he recalled that a woman was crying the entire way into the city because one, she did not want to leave, and two, she did not know why she was being forced to leave. No one had taken the time to explain to her or tell her anything. She was an older lady, so it was clear she had been in Africville for a long time. This was her home. This is where she wanted to remain, and she wasn't given the opportunity to do so. She had no idea where she was going, and she was alone, which would have made this whole process even more frightening. To make the forced integration easier, the city promised consistent supports for Africville residents, and these supports were intended to make the transition as easy as possible. There were a multitude of varying committees and subcommittees who were created just to help and report how the transition went, but it seems like they were just around to monitor and make sure that any uprisings would be squashed because the city knew what Africvillians would have been up to. Most of these governmental committees, groups, subgroups, reporting committees, or other groups that were created 
to help were only around for a couple of years, and it's unclear how helpful these supports really were. It's very frustrating because they took this independent, self-sufficient community and intentionally made them dependent on a system that had no interest in their well-being. They also created all of these other jobs for non-Black people to police Africans as they transitioned. And once public white attention weaned, then supports were removed and that made any form of accountability nearly impossible. Residents were also told that they would be relocated to superior housing in the city, that it would be better than what they had built for themselves, and that was a lie. Many were moved into public housing or worse housing than they had previously lived in. Many thought that the funds they got for in exchange for their land would be enough to be financially comfortable in the city. Again, not accurate. It would be enough to maybe pay their rent for a short amount of time if they remained in public housing or to put a down payment on a home if they could find someone who would sell them a home because they were black. Now we are going to get into the problems faced after the forced relocation. White residents wanted Africville gone. It was consistently seen as an eyesore, but they also did not want Africvillians to be in the city near them or near their children. So racism was an issue when black folks were both in and out of Africville. The only difference is when they were in Africville, their safe haven, it couldn't really affect them. But now that they were moved into the city, there was nowhere to hide. Many Africvillians who moved into the city would receive threats. And on one such occasion, a man received a written threat saying that his house would be burned down if he and his family did not leave. And the note was signed, the white people of Hammond Plains, which was an area in Halifax. As mentioned before, it was very difficult for black folks to find jobs due to racism. And this just continued. There was no church or communal spaces for black folks to gather and build community. So it caused the once close and independent community to separate and become wrapped up in trying to survive in a new system with no supports. Many would turn to welfare to aid them in their survival. Now, some relocated to other cities, such as Montreal, Toronto, and Winnipeg, all of which presented their own unique challenges. But those who remained had to turn to governmental assistance, as I mentioned, as the cost of living kept rising, but adequate paying jobs were not common and were very difficult to come across. None of my research mentioned unequal or unbalanced pay, but I don't think that would be an unfair assumption to make, that if they were able to find jobs, they wouldn't be well-paying jobs, so they would still need governmental assistance. So now we are going to talk about a wonderful man named Eddie Carvery. I mentioned him a little bit before. He was the man who described that the garbage dump would look like it was alive with the amount of rats that would be around at night. Now, after the last property was demolished, the last of the Africvillians left as well. The town that they had built, established, and loved was destroyed without any consultation and without their consent. Eddie Carvery, however, who was 24 at the time, went back to Africville in 1970 and set up a protest site. He was born in Africville and was determined to stay in Africville for as long as possible. His demands were a public inquiry into the destruction, demolition, and overall treatment of Africvillians 
for the city to be reconstructed for surviving Africvillians and their descendants, as well as an inquiry into what toxic waste was in the dumps and the effects that the unknown waste and rat poison had on people's health. And he also demanded that individual compensation be available for all community residents. He actively occupied this site on and off for 50 years and remained in good spirits throughout the entire time. Eddie was often harassed by police at the beginning stages of his protest. He would leave his protest site, come back, just to find everything completely destroyed. He also remembers several times he had to run and hide as white Haligonians wearing swastikas were shooting at him, actively trying to kill him. Just sit in that for a minute. This man is protesting for the rights of him and his community members and racist folks are trying to kill him for simply peacefully protesting. His protest vehicle was an unheated trailer which had Africville protests painted in bright red paint all over the trailer. It remained three feet from the Bedford Basin at all times, but the city did seize his trailer on multiple occasions throughout the 50 plus years of his protest, so they were not willing to meet his demands but they were willing to take away his trailer and act like nothing had ever happened. Eddie calls everything that the Nova Scotian government did a form of slow genocide, and I agree. They forced residents out of their home, they poisoned them, they created illiteracy, and the city of Halifax and the province of Nova Scotia are responsible for racism and genocide in the first degree, according to Eddie. He and a group of other Africvillians had their grievances heard in 2013 by the city of Halifax, but Eddie's expectations remained low. He stated that he and the other residents going to court were illiterate, they did not have money, and the city knew that they wouldn't be prepared and couldn't afford to fight them in their own system. Eddie felt that it would just be another way for the city to close the books and erase what had happened to the people in his town. He wanted to mobilize others into civil disobedience to, de civil disobedience to demand what they deserved, but he stated that he usually has to stand alone. All he wanted was for people to stand up for themselves, and ultimately, by doing that, they would be standing up for what was right. He wanted Halifax to right their wrongs, rebuild the community, and hand out individual monetary compensations where they are due. And none of those things happened, unfortunately. Eddie says that he misses Africville. He misses his community members. He misses the warm spirit that the community held. And he still to this day believes that it is the most beautiful place in the world. Eddie is responsible for one of the longest civil rights protests in Canadian history. Yet it is one rarely, if ever discussed in any setting, let alone a formal colonial one, such as the institution of education. His protest site finally came down in November of 2019. Now we are going to get into the 2010 apology and financial compensation that was doled out by the Haligonian government. So some form of settlement was reached in 2010 with the Africville Genealogy Society, which was four decades after the initial destruction of the town began. 
Now, in the 1980s, the Africville Genealogy Society was formed and began to take legal action against the city for the destruction of their community. Prior to the Genealogy Society being formed, there was another one formed by residents in 1969, which was named the Africville Action Committee. It seems as if both groups did a lot of the same things. They just wanted to keep community ties as strong as possible, so they continued to hold picnics, church services, and gatherings in what is what was known as Africville. The mayor of Halifax publicly apologized in February of 2010, and part of his apology stated that he was there on behalf to deliver a formal apology to all whose lives had been altered by the loss of Africville. He acknowledged that his words cannot undo anything that has been done, and it might not make amends. The actions that the government took haunt the city of Halifax to this day, according to the mayor, in the form of lost opportunities for young people who never got the chance to be immersed in rich tradition, culture, and heritage of the town. Now, the financial compensation added up to $5 million from the three levels of government. $3 million was directly from the city of Halifax. $1.5 million was from the province of Nova Scotia, and 250000 came directly from the federal government of Canada, which that 250000 specifically went towards the Africville Heritage Trust, which is responsible or was responsible for designing and replicating the community church. A hectare of land was also signed over, um, and there was also a commitment to rebuild the Seaview United Baptist Church at its original site. The Africville Museum opened in 2012, and the museum was established out of the financial payout mentioned previously. According to their website, the museum overlooks the land where Africvillians lived and worked. At the museum, you can learn about former residents and their descendants, as it also acts as a place for those same groups of people to connect with, learn about, and rebuild their sense of pride about what the town was before the city of Halifax destroyed it. It also serves as a place to remember Africvillian legacy and its contribution to African diasporic history. Seaview Park will be was to be renamed Africville Park, but would not change ownership, and that to me is a little bit sus, but all right. Um, but not all former residents were happy with this deal, which totally makes sense. Many were hoping for individual compensation rather than a lump sum of money to be given to this organization. Through this lump sum payment, no individuals or families would receive compensation for the trauma and the emotional and also the emotional turmoil and also the health problems that had ensued because of the city of Halifax. Others believe that the community should be rebuilt and Africvillians and their descendants should get to live on the land independently as if the destruction and forced embarrassing relocation had never occurred. Some were even in the crowd as this apology took place and were shouting not enough as a form of protest. Ten years after this apology, the provincial government took the time to be extremely performative and 
and announced that a bell which was hung outside the Seaview United Baptist Church which survived the demolition and had been kept safe at another church in Beachville for all this time would be returned and placed outside of the Africville Museum. To me, this is super performative because they didn't need to announce that the bell would return to its rightful place after they had tried to destroy the bell. Like, you don't need to be announcing that. Just give it back. So we have now come to the point of the podcast episode where I discuss my thoughts. So I have a personal connection to this case, not in terms of me actually like having family that lived there or anything like that but when i was in grade eight social studies we got to write an essay about anything we wanted and by this point i had learned like quite literally nothing about black history and i would continue to never learn about black history in a formal classroom setting everything that i know about black history in the context of canada i have researched myself so At the time, I was just researching a bit online about black history in the context of Canada, and that's when I first learned about Viola Desmond and also Africville. But at the time, the only information about Africville was covered by Vice, and there was maybe one or two other articles, but Vice did an interview with Eddie Carvery, and nothing was quite as honest as the interview that Eddie had done. Many sources still now to this day just brush over what happened and brush over the horrendous treatment of Africvillians. To me, this is just another way of Canada making sure it maintains its sweet and kind image despite doing terribly racist and violent things since this so-called country came to conception. The health hazards and effects also were never formally addressed in the apology or by the Africville Genealogy Society. So the fact that a lot of people who lived in Africville and lived there for a significant amount of time were struggling with cancer due to the actions of the Haligonian government, like that should be addressed. That should 1000% be addressed. There's no reason for it to be left out. There's no reason for people to act like it doesn't exist. Because yes, if you are dumping rat poison, you are dumping sick people's body parts, their waste, their clothing, the things that are used to clean them, the tools. If you're just dumping that in the area, that's toxic. If you're burning it, that's even more toxic. The fact that they had trains running through the town and that gas and that heavy smoke always being released in the air, that's toxic. And a lot of these people who were in Africville lived there from the time they were little all the way to the time they got older. So their entire lives, they are breathing in these toxic fumes, which is just causing health problems and that was never addressed. I don't know how you can make an apology for all of the things that you've done, supposedly, but then leave that out. I also don't know why the Africville Genealogy Society did not address that. It also, to me, does not make any sense that no individual payouts or compensation will be given. That is one of the first things that should have been done in this case. Like, absolutely. If not because of the destruction of the city but also because of the fact that these individuals were paying taxes to the Haligonian government and were not receiving basic services such as snow clearing, clean water, street lights, electricity, very basic things that everyone had in this time but Africville, even though they paid for it. 
They could not find jobs in the city. They went and they made their own money. They found a way to make the money to pay the taxes and didn't receive any of the benefits from the taxes. They did not even have a cemetery. I understand that an apology has been made and compensation has been doled out, but to me it's not enough. It's not enough at all for the hell on earth that they were put through simply because they were black and they were independent and they did not want to rely on a system that did not care about them. The thing that's also extremely frustrating to me is the fact that Eddie Carvery's story and his protest is not ever shared. I had never heard about it until I had done the research and it is one of the longest standing human rights protests in Canada, civil rights protests in Canada. But it's not discussed because what he's protesting was the horrendous actions of the Haligonian government, which the federal government knew about and did nothing to stop, did nothing to intervene. If anything, it was more support given for them to carry out these horrendous acts. When people's homes are bulldozed and they are not aware or they barely have time to grab their belongings before they have to leave, that sounds to me like something that deserves individual compensation quickly, swiftly without question, without haste. If you could find $5 million to dish out to this organization, there is definitely the money to find, to give out individual compensations to African millions who remain alive and their descendants. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That needs to happen. Also, land should have been given. It should not have just been money. There should also be land given to those individuals who deserve individual payouts as well. It was just so difficult to find information about Africville as a whole and what it was like and the ebb and flow and the ins and outs and the day-to-day because there was just so many things that the Haligonian government did to stop them from existing. And Africville is not something that is commonly taught or if it is taught to this day, it is still taught incorrectly. Like, people really gloss over the insane, inhumane treatment that these individuals received simply because they were black and they did not want to do what the government said. So they're like, okay, well, we'll just place undesirable facilities and then you'll want to leave. And they didn't want to leave. So then they're like, okay, well, we'll make it even more unbearable. We'll just keep doing things to make the living circumstances unbearable. And they still did not leave to the point where they had to go and demolish the church in the middle of the night to get people to realize that this town will be no more i think that the city needs to step up and do better and be better because that apology which didn't even address everything that really went down in 2010 is not cutting it i think that eddie carvery's demands deserve to be listened to and heard because he was the one out there consistently creating that public pressure for over 50 years if he wasn't out there doing that the Africvillian Genealogy Society would not have gotten to where they were in terms of compensation, in terms of even being able to have that conversation with the government. Individual payouts need to happen. There needs to be a study into the health effects of placing all of these undesirable facilities and these hazardous facilities right beside where these people lived, where their children lived and played, where they grew up, where they worked the fact like it may have gotten into some of their food like you just don't know and a study should have been done also whatever private housing was built on africville in africville 
needs to be redistributed to the descendants of Africvillians. There should not be any other type of housing there. There should not be anybody else who gets to live there except for Africvillians who inhabited that land for over a hundred years. And we have now come to the end of this episode. I thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Girl You Haven't Heard a black history and true crime podcast where this week we discuss the black Canadian town of Africville and the wrongdoings that the Canadian and Haligonian government allowed and carried out first-handedly because they did not want to see black people thrive without their assistance. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next week.